Whereas in older generations of horror films, high schools and suburbs and summer camps were these sites of sex and drinking and bullying and other forms of misdeeds. For today's audiences, the art world conveys more modern types of sin, I think. Hi, I'm Tim Schneider, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. If you consider yourself a dedicated fan of contemporary art, then you're probably no stranger to watching things on screen that the average person would find bizarre, upsetting, or even downright gruesome. So it should come as no surprise that the art world and the Artnet News staff contains more than a couple diehard fans of horror movies, too. But what's more surprising than the contemporary art world having an interest in Hollywood horror flicks is that Hollywood horror flicks increasingly seem to have an interest in the contemporary art world. Over the past few years, big-name studios and production companies have released multiple hair-raising feature films with, you guessed it, an art angle. And while each one of these movies has sunk its claws into different aspects of contemporary art, the fact that screenwriters and directors keep coming back to it for spooky material suggests that something larger is afoot in the broader culture's perception of the strange little cult we call the art world. In honor of Halloween, my Artnet News colleague and fellow horror aficionado Taylor Defoe wrote a piece that offered up some ideas about why exactly contemporary art has haunted so many recent scary movies. Through the cursed app known as Zoom, Taylor joined me to talk about three recent films featured in his piece. Candyman, Velvet Buzzsaw, and Hereditary. Now, a couple haunted housekeeping items before we begin. If you haven't seen those movies but want to, be advised that there are spoilers scattered throughout this episode. And if you have some feedback or maybe a recommendation for a future episode, go ahead and email us at podcasts at artnet.com. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T-S at artnet.com. Okay, with all that out of the way, Lock your doors, turn out the lights, and follow Taylor and me into the dark. If you dare. Taylor Defoe, welcome back to The Art Angle. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. Now, before we actually get into talking about what we're really supposed to be talking about, unless something has changed, you're zooming into this interview from like a ridiculously appropriate location for this episode. Can you just tell our listeners where you are? Sure. I'm at an old house in upstate New York that my partner and I recently purchased and are currently renovating. It's really run down, has a lot of character, gets very dark and quiet at night. I mentioned this to you before, but when we first showed up to look at the place, we went up into the attic and uh, there was a small child facing the corner and just weeping. (laughs) Well, that's cool, and that was not supposed to be included when you like got the deed. It wasn't for the on house. the it wasn't on the Zillow listing. Okay, but he seemed nice enough, so we we let him be. Oh, that's cool. Well, congratulations on your your new home and uh, your newly expanded family. <laughs> thanks, <laughs> thanks very much. We haven't talked adoption yet, but, okay. but but thank you. Okay, so while you're up there fixing up your new house with your new ghostly child, you've been watching a lot of horror movies, and what has emerged is that there is a lot of crossover now between horror movies and the art world. 
So for degenerates like you and me who pay a lot of attention to both of these art forms, it's been pretty clear for a while that we're in the midst of this multi-year run of Hollywood horror flicks that lean into contemporary art in one way or another. Do you remember if there was a specific point in the past couple of years where you just kind of like looked up from your watch list and were like, huh, I guess this is really a thing now? Well, I'd taken note of several recent horror and thriller movies that had a connection to art or the art world. At Artnet, we had written about some of these and at least talked about covering others. But for me, the realization that this was a quote-unquote thing came just a couple of months ago with the release of Candyman, the much-anticipated reboot to the 1992 classic of the same name. Not only is this 2021 movie about an artist, but it goes to these great lengths to place the story in today's art world. and shows a real fidelity to um, the Chicago art scene in particular. The main artist, for instance, is in a group show with the Astor Gates and uh, Torquoise Dyson, for instance. It was such a specific decision in that movie that I started wondering about why the filmmaker, Nia DaCosta, chose to do that. Uh, then I started thinking about those other recent art-adjacent scary movies many of which I realized had a similar feel to Candyman, or at least seemed to be using the setting of the art world in a similar way. That's when I realized it was a thing. Yeah, Theister Gates and Torquoise Dyson are not artists that would be familiar to a mainstream audience, so that seems like a very specific decision. Before we go into Candyman a little bit more, and just for the sake of our producer, Sonia Manalili, I'm going to now say it. Candyman, 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 Candyman. Um... <laughs> <laughs> Before we get into Candyman specifically, I want to step back and just talk about kind of the big picture of this stuff, because what you found in watching these movies is that contemporary art is being used for slightly different purposes in some of them. And when we were all talking about how to do this episode, you came up with this idea of there being kind of a spectrum or a thematic continuum that these movies will operate on when it comes to art. Can you kind of talk about what that continuum is? Well, I think traditionally art has been used as a kind of conceptual apparatus or narrative device within horror and thriller movies. Often the art will come alive or it acts as an avatar for evil. The artist kind of connects with a villainous force via art. Um, and for filmmakers, I think art simply provides a creative way to bring these ideas to life. It's a really fertile ground for metaphor. In the last couple of years, though, we've seen a number of movies set in the contemporary art world, which to me is a different thing. Those films may use art for elaborate scares, but their aims are headier, I think. The way I think about it is horror movies tend to have a, a rather clear moral compass. It's uh, why people talk about the role of sin so much when they talk about horror films, whereas in older generations of horror films, high schools and suburbs and summer camps were these sites of sex and drinking and bullying and other forms of misdeeds. For today's audiences, the art world conveys more modern types of sin, I think. Cultural appropriation, gentrification, the way the wealthy elite reinforce these systemic inequities of power. I think the art world is an appealing setting for these modern filmmakers because for audience, it scans as a little bit evil, which should be alarming for us who work in that industry. Yeah, for sure. And so in the big picture, then we're sort of dealing with this spectrum of on the one side, scary or haunted artwork that can be used for chills and thrills. And then on the other side, this 
dealing with the kind of unsavory, sinister social aspects that surround contemporary art today. Is that sort of a fair way of summarizing it? I think so. And the latter trend is a recent one. It's something that I think we can really sort of put a finger on in the last five or six years. It's worth pointing out. Okay, cool. Since you already brought up Candyman, which is the most recent of the films that we want to talk about today, let's just start there. So Candyman was just released last month, and it's built around this tagline, Say His Name. And the legend is, if we say his name five times while looking in the mirror, we could summon him. Summon the Candyman. Hell no. Can you sort of tell us what the significance of that say his name tagline is from a plot perspective and how art plays a role in the movie. Sure. This year's Candyman is about a young black figurative painter in Chicago who is stymied creatively. He finds inspiration in this urban myth about Candyman, a hook-handed man who used to haunt a local housing project in an area that has since been gentrified. And legend has it that you summon Candyman by saying his name five times in a mirror. The artist begins making work about the Candyman, and soon after, people around him start dying in grisly fashion. That's kind of the general contour of the movie. Right. So that kind of sounds like it could be a scary artwork movie, but at the same time, as you move deeper and deeper into the story, it also sounds like the artwork becomes more and more incidental to what Nia DaCosta really wants to say with the film. I mean, it even seems noteworthy to me that the whole say-his-name angle brings back the say-their-names chant that was so big a part of the protests sparked by the police killings of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and, sadly, too many others to really mention here. Is it fair to say that the art world in Candyman ultimately ends up being most important as a kind of an avenue to this larger social critique? Yeah, I think that's fair. The artwork is incidental, and we actually don't see that much of it in the film. But the art world setting isn't incidental. It's pretty important throughout the movie. This is a movie that's about gentrification and who's complicit in that process, and it's about representation and who can tell whose story. And those are questions that the art world itself is still grappling with. It's also a movie about myth-making and about the exploitation of Black narratives, both of which the art industry has been accused of. Right. And if I'm not mistaken, in the original 1992 Candyman, the source of the Candyman legend was also an artist, but it doesn't really figure into the plot in any way other than just being a detail that is thrown out but not really done much with. It sort of seems like DaCosta is saying, okay, this detail that was just used incidentally 30 years ago is actually really important today from a thematic standpoint to talk about these bigger issues. Yeah, absolutely. In the original Candyman, the figure of Candyman, he was the son of a slave who became a successful painter but was lynched after having an affair with a white woman. And after being murdered, he comes back to haunt. But like you said, the fact that he was an artist was a small but an incidental detail. But it's really interesting that the filmmaker chose to hone in on that particular detail and build this new movie 
within that little world suggested by that detail in the first film. So we should mention here that one of the producers of the Candyman reboot was Jordan Peele, who explored some of the same territory on a smaller scale when he wrote and directed Get Out a few years ago. And Peele defined that movie as a quote-unquote social thriller. What did he mean by that term, and how did it manifest in Get Out itself? Yeah, so the social thriller is a kind of subgenre that's become popularized since Get Out, when Peele used that term to describe his movie. He defined it at the time as a thriller or horror movie where the ultimate villain is society, which is a little bit of a funny idea, because, of course, horror movies have always used monsters and villains to metaphorize societal ills. But I think about social thrillers as movies that literalize a real-world evil. The subtext almost becomes the text in many of them. So Get Out is about a lot of things, but one of the things it's about is the exploitation of Black bodies. Um, And the movie literalizes that through this elaborate Twilight Zone-y operation. A blind white art dealer seeks to have his brain transplanted into the body of a Black photographer. Right. And the idea there is that, from what I've read, Peel is making a point about racism in an almost extreme sense of here's a guy who can't even see skin color in that he is actually blind and yet he still wants to exploit this young black artist in a way that is supernatural but not necessarily super divorced from the most predatory ways that we've seen it happen in actual examples in the living breathing contemporary art world Yeah, that's right. I have a quote here in front of me that he gave to Rolling Stone in 2019, talking about that character, this white art dealer. Um, He said, the idea is that this guy who's the farthest from racist, this guy who's literally blind, as you mentioned, Tim, still plays a part in the system of racism. And the way it manifests in that movie is a guy who believes that the eye of this better artist, this black artist, is what's separating him from being a success or failure. And a lot of people have read that movie as being an allegory for liberal racism. And that's something that Peel has talked about, too. And that instance with the blind dealer really sort of symbolizes that. Right. And that liberal racism that Peel is talking about is immortalized in one of the key lines from Get Out, where somebody who has a real central role in this nefarious plot to exploit young black men declares that he would have voted for Obama a third time. (laughs) Which is an all-time great line. for sure. Okay, so if we have that framework of a social thriller behind us. Do you think it's fair to refer to Candyman as a social horror movie, almost? Yeah. I think the kind of genre lines of thriller and horror are tricky and often kind of arbitrary. But I think that Candyman is cut from the same cloth as Get Out. And as you mentioned before, was co-produced and co-written by Jordan Peele um, as well, which, which would make some sense. I wrote about this in my article. A big theme of that movie is this idea of gentrification. And at one point in the film, the main character, an artist, finds himself explaining his artwork to a prominent critic at a gallery opening. And she accuses the artist 
of being a player in the cycles of gentrification. And she goes even further, accusing all artists of being, quote, real pioneers of that cycle. She says artists descend upon disenfranchised neighborhoods to find cheap rent so they can dick around in their studios without the crushing burden of a day job. And she's both right and wrong in that accusation. The artist lives in this swanky high-rise that overlooks the housing project that he's making work about, this housing project where the myth of Candyman supposedly began. But we find out later that the artist was also born in that same housing project. By the time we find that out, various people around him have started dying off. And when people start dying off, after this artist has made this work about the Candyman myth, the critic, who originally was very cold on the artist's work, has come around. And she now thinks that his work is, quote-unquote, eternal. In that social thriller way, the critic both actually speaks the kind of subtext of what's going on in the film and enacts it. She is herself sort of appropriating this narrative. Okay, so then to summarize, it sounds like it's really almost impossible to separate the horror and the basic storyline of Candyman from these larger social issues that the art world gives us an avenue into. And that's probably a pretty good reference point for one way that filmmakers today are are using contemporary art to make a point. So let's move on to the second movie in our list, which has a very different reputation here in the art world, and that is Velvet Buzzsaw. Who did these? Uh, Mesmeric. A guy upstairs, he died. And you just took them. He had my family or friends. I can make you rich. How would you summarize what Velvet Buzzsaw is about? Velvet Buzzsaw is about a group of people in the L.A. art scene who seek to profit off of the work of a reclusive, if somewhat disturbed, painter who just died. This fledgling gallery director smuggles a trove of artwork from the artist's apartment and brings it to market, only to find out later that the painter wanted all his creations destroyed. A critic plans to write the first book about the deceased artist, and a curator leaves a museum to become an art advisor so she can buy this artist's paintings on a client's dime. Even an art handler attempts to steal a few of the paintings before putting the rest in storage. But as the movie goes along, all of these bad actors in this story, all these people trying to exploit this deceased artist for a buck, start being killed by the artworks around them. Right. And... (laughs) how do you get killed by an artwork exactly? I would say one of the joys of Velvet Buzzsaw is the way in which it answers that question again and again in really imaginative ways. And probably the most famous instance, at least amongst our crowd, a life-size robotic figure, which bears a real likeness to Jordan Wolfson's female figure. The movie even says as much comes to life and strangles one of the film's main characters, a critic played by Jake Gyllenhaal. In other instances, paint from a painting like leaves the canvas and subsumes this woman in a gallery. In another instance, the monkeys in a painting of monkeys 
leave the canvas and kill the art handler. We should probably clarify here that the specific types of works that this artist, who has the incredible name Ventral D's, was making were these disturbing figurative paintings that sometimes involved people, sometimes involved animals, but they're definitely the kind of works that you would look at if you saw them outside of the setting of a horror movie and be like, that's not cool. I don't really want to be contemplating this. So they're really like a perfect setup for the haunted artwork trope to play out. Very much so. They're very Francis bacon He One of his paintings actually makes a cameo in the film. So in this world, it sounds like we're even dealing with something different than Candyman in the sense that it is very much about like the art industry per se. I mean, the movie starts off at an art fair that is pretty clearly Art Basel, Miami Beach. You go to museums, you go to gallery openings, you even get some of the behind the scenes stuff with art dealers going into storage units and stuff like that. So it seems like it's really embedded in the art world. But unlike what Candyman is trying to do, it's not necessarily trying to make a super, super serious social point. It's sort of just satirizing a bunch of ridiculous people doing bad things to each other. I would say that its aims aren't as serious as Candyman. It's very clearly satire. The film definitely sets its sights on a particular crowd. It has something to say, in other words, even if the way it says it can be a little bit campy sometimes, a little bit silly. Yeah, so when I talked to Dan Gilroy, the writer-director, he definitely had a point that he wanted to get across in the movie. I mean, every satire has a some kind of argument that it's trying to make. But he said at the time that his point was less about the art world per se than about the way that he thinks all creative industries are becoming increasingly soulless and just driven by the idea of people just doing what works financially over and over and over again instead of like, taking risks or prioritizing the greater intangible values of art. And yet, even with that theme being as diffuse as it is, he still chose the contemporary art world as the specific venue to make that point. What is it about this world that you think he might have seen that an audience would agree with? when it comes to the way that the characters in this movie behave and the types of things that they're motivated by and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I reread your interview with him recently as well. It's a really good interview. I think Gilroy even makes this point. Among the creative industries, the art world is the one where the role of commerce is perhaps the most overt I think it might just be that feeling of when you walk into an art fair and you're just sort of struck with the shopping mall vibe of it all. As somebody who used to work in the gallery world, something that you don't really fully realize is just a fan of art until you work inside of it is just how much of the business of selling art is just on some level, like selling anything else. Like you still need to make the rent at the end of the month. You still need to be able to pay your staff. And therefore you have to always 
always be selling something effectively. And so it does create this kind of friction, I think, between the lofty values that we're taught to ascribe to art and the much grubbier day-to-day business of capitalism in the 21st century and then even the 20th century before. Catapulting off of that, though, I do also kind of feel like the art world is just really easy to make fun of. Totally. <laughs> it's, uh, like, I will never forget back in Miami in 2019, when I was down there for Art Basel Miami Beach, ended up in an Uber pool with a bunch of people who were not art people. But they all knew about the Mauricio Catalan banana taped to a wall being sold for over $100,000. And it's just really a great grounding moment to hear the way that regular people who knew about what was happening in the art world that week were portraying the people involved, including me, <laughs> and, like, <laughs> and just what the art world is. So, I mean, that, that seems to me like if you're going to make a satire and you want people to laugh, there are a lot of figures in the contemporary art world that you can use as pretty easy targets, I think. Yeah. As I was watching it this most recent time, I was just thinking to myself about how over the top and silly this all was, how kind of openly satirical it was, which seems like an obvious observation. But when I first saw it, I was like, oh, this is pretty spot on. This feels real, you know? Yeah. Sometimes it could be hard to sort of step away from the thing that you're surrounded by every day and see the the absurdity of it all. I don't think people outside the art industry have that problem. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's, that's definitely true. I also think that's part of the reason that Velvet Buzzsaw tends to be very polarizing among art people. I tend to think that it works really well as a satire and it's not as successful as an actual horror movie. But there are a lot of people who are just deeply offended by the portrayals of the art people in it. And I'm always kind of like, I think that you're sort of saying the quiet part out loud about yeah. how you feel about <laughs> yeah. your own life right now. Oh, so the butt of the joke doesn't like the joke? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, it's, I think it's hitting a little too close to home for some people yeah. sometimes. We should also mention here before we move on that the central character in Velvet Buzzsaw, just played by Jake Gyllenhaal, is an art critic named Morph Vandewalt who writes for an online publication called ArtWeb, which seems, you know, pretty clearly inspired by a certain publication that you and I are very familiar with. So before we leave Velvet Buzzsaw behind, is there a particular moment or a particular scene in the movie that you think really captures the sort of dual purposes that Gilroy wants contemporary art to serve in the movie? Yeah, I was thinking about this uh, when I last watched the movie, and it's not a scary scene. There's a moment where a kind of slimy young gallerist is trying to poach a name brand artist played by John Malkovich. So the dealer goes to the artist's studio in L.A. He enters the building, and on the first floor is this bustling landscape of assistants fabricating these small figurines and other licensed facsimiles of the artist's work. Uh, It looks like a toy factory. 
And then they go upstairs where Malkovich's real work is. And it's this cavernous space with just a single canvas on an easel and a big bag of trash on the floor. And the gallerist walks into this space and puts his hand on his chin and stops at the bag of trash and says, it's a masterpiece. (laughs) I thought it was so genius. (laughs) Yeah, and I think that they actually sort of revive that joke later on in the movie after there's a uh, particularly horrific death where the museum professional turned advisor that you mentioned before who's played by Tony Collette who really just goes through hell in the movies you and I are going to talk about today <laughs> I love her <laughs> uh, but she she sort of ends up being torn limb from limb by this haunted sculpture that's up in an art fair and then her colleagues discover her the next morning and they're they're partly freaked out just because apparently the people who were touring around the art fair just thought that her body was part of the art. And (laughs) I think that she even says, oh my God, we're trending on Instagram. (laughs) Yeah, when that movie is firing, it's really firing. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I would agree. Speaking of firing in a different way, (laughs) I want to move on to the last movie we were going to talk about today, which is Hereditary, which is a pretty dramatic tonal shift from the satire of Velvet Buzzsaw. So for listeners who haven't actually watched Hereditary, the trailer doesn't really tell you much about the actual story. And for people like you and me who have seen it, you understand that the reason the trailer is probably as impressionistic as it is, is that the movie just goes so absolutely batshit that putting together any kind of super linear teaser for what's going to happen would be either just like a gigantic mistake or not even possible from a <laughs> a regulatory standpoint. So pretend I'm a Hollywood executive and you're giving me the classic elevator pitch. What is Hereditary about and how does art figure into it? Yeah, it's hard to talk about Hereditary's plot, partly because more than spoiling parts of it, you can't talk about it without ruining it, you know? And It's also hard to talk about the plot because the plot is not what sticks with you when you see the thing. It's really these like elaborate set pieces and just the vibe of the whole thing. On the surface, it's about an artist and her family who are haunted by this unknown presence after a traumatic accident. And this artist, she makes these incredibly detailed miniature dioramas of scenes that happened in her life. And she has recently experienced the death of her mother, who we find out cast a long shadow in her life. She was a very difficult woman, which maybe explains me. I recognize you from your mother. What? Sometimes I swear I can feel them in the room. And so the artist, who's played by Tony Collette of Velvet Buzzsaw fame, there's a pretty common understanding, at least among art world people, that she's inspired by, let's say, a particular contemporary artist of some renown. Who is that artist and what are the similarities with the actual work? I think you're probably talking about Laurie Simmons, who is not a sculptor by definition, but a photographer who kind of rose to prominence 
in the 1980s with the pictures generation. And she is somebody who crafted scenes of dolls and miniature figurines and then would photograph them. Lori Simmons' work, as I understand it, at least that particular series you're talking about, is very much about this idea of finding a way to make very familiar, banal, domestic scenes somewhat sinister in a way, to um, to put them under a microscope that you don't normally get in reality, and in doing that to start to peel away some of the more disquieting elements that are lurking beneath the everyday. And it's not super hard, if you want to read into it, to be able to link that kind of theme to the underlying plot dynamic of Hereditary, which is very much about these dark secrets buried within a family that people are maybe dealing with, but not necessarily talking about much. Yeah, that's really well said. For me, and this is the picture generation element of it all, is that in Simmons' work, the role of the camera as this apparatus that kind of enables that unveiling of these underlying things is really crucial. And so I think of her as a photographer. And so I never really got the Simmons connection to um, the artist in Hereditary. But I think what you're saying is exactly right. And that was spelled out very well. Well, thanks. And like not to get too meta about it, but there's a way in which you could argue that Tony Collette certainly isn't taking the photos of these dioramas that she's building. But there is very much photography that is central to Hereditary, which is the photography that's actually being shot by the cinematographer, directed by the director, and put on screen ahead of you. So there is this same kind of leveling thing. It's just sort of happening on a layer removed. Astor seems to play with that in the way that he actually uses some of these miniatures throughout the film in terms of the way he shoots them, right? Yeah. I went back and looked at some interviews with Astor, but also the special effects technician that made the dollhouse and and worked on other aspects of the film. The house is a sort of character unto itself. This house was not an actual house, but was built on a soundstage and was built like a real-life dollhouse with walls removed so that cameras could get in and kind of activate the viewer in a certain way. It's not a unique thing among films. Lots of films build their sets in that way in the name of camera access. But I think what you're saying is right in that the filmmaker sort of uses the camera in the way that we as viewers sort of look at and approach a dollhouse. A little bit on the outside, but also kind of able to rotate in and out of it and around it. The comparison to Simmons makes a lot of sense in that way. Yeah, it's probably one of those things that art people can read into if they want to. It's also could just be that her ideas from the 80s have just been so thoroughly subsumed into the culture at this point that you don't necessarily need to be referencing her specifically to be using some of the same ideas. I will just point out here, though, that if I'm not mistaken, the opening shot of Hereditary is of the camera pushing in to one of these miniature sculptures that Tony Gallet's character has made. 
And as you get closer and closer, suddenly you actually see people walk into the room and start interacting. And suddenly you're actually gets all the way in and you're suddenly like in a shot that otherwise would seem very normal. And there's just kind of this like, what the hell just happened kind of moment. Yeah. That's like the purest embodiment of that thing I was talking about before, about treating the dollhouse like a real house and treating the real house almost like a dollhouse. The movie is very good at that, but it's never clearer than that opening scene. And as listeners may have picked up by now, one of the reasons that you and I are going so deep on the visual side of this movie and its connection to the art world is what you referenced before. There isn't really that much of a story element that plays out. Like Tony Collette's character happens to be an artist, but it seems more like the movie is using her artwork as an avenue to put some really cool and also really disturbing things on screen as opposed to really trying to make a point about the art world itself or the social horrors that are cropping up around it. Definitely. I think within this continuum, to use your word, that we've laid out about this social thriller on one side that uses the contemporary art worlds to make larger points about society. This movie falls on the other side, which really just uses art as a kind of conceptual apparatus within the movie. And are there any other scenes that you would point to in the movie that use artwork in some kind of way that really amplifies the story or amplifies the scares? There are numerous instances when the shots of the dollhouse, basically, it almost works as sort of visual exposition. It tells a story that we're not otherwise getting about the past. And in some instances, about potentially a future, an event that hasn't happened yet. So in the way that we were talking before about how the movie goes in between between these two worlds about this dollhouse and this real house and how they intertwine in these curious ways, it really uses the dollhouse as an instrument to kind of achieve that. Okay, so when we put all these movies we've talked about together, it seems like contemporary art is really kind of, this may be too cute, but like the perfect vein for horror movies to tap in that you have these really great, sometimes really disturbing objects and environments and visuals surrounded by, in some cases, money-hungry people often doing shady or outright malevolent stuff and at the same time perpetuating or feeding off of some of the larger injustices that are messing things up in the wider world. So given all of that, do you think it's likely that we're going to see more horror movies that incorporate the art world in one of these ways that we've talked about? Yeah, well, I think these movies that use art creatively for narrative purposes or otherwise, I don't think that's ever going to go away. That's such a rich source of metaphor, as I mentioned before. The other type of movie, the movie that uses the art world to get at larger ideas about society in general, I don't know if that'll continue or not. It certainly wouldn't surprise me. I think that it certainly says something about the art world itself, that these films, which by Hollywood standards are rather big films, they come with a big budget, produced by mid-level to big studios, in the case of Candyman, at least, um, and are expected to be seen by many, many people. It's really telling that the filmmakers behind these films are going to the art world as this 
setting that is immediately legible to an audience as a place where horror can take place. Yeah, it definitely comes off as maybe being a, maybe we should all look in the mirror and think about what we're doing situation. Yeah, and when you're when you're doing that, just say Candyman five times. <laughs> exactly. Well, that seems like the perfect note to end on. Taylor, thanks so much for your perspective on this. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. That's it for this week's episode. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Also, take a moment to rate and review us. It will help other listeners discover what we're doing. The Art Angle is produced by Sonia Manalili, Caroline Goldstein, and me, Tim Schneider. Thanks for listening. Happy Halloween, and see you next week.